All right, church. Well, good to be with you guys again. Uh, in case you're new or visiting, my name is Luke, one of the pastor elders here at Carson Valley Bible Church. And if you have a Bible or one of those scripture journals, uh, may I encourage you to find your way to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 is where we're going to be at, which if you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles, that's just on page 10. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. Now, before I read uh, the whole chapter for us this morning, I want to point out that this text of the Bible, Genesis chapter 15, uh, and this is not uh, an exaggeration, uh, I believe this wholeheartedly, that Genesis chapter 15 is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. Not only to what it tells us historically or grammatically, but also what it says redemptively. Meaning, how does this chapter point forward to where the rest of the Bible goes? How does this chapter look beyond itself? How does this chapter point us to Christ? How does this chapter reveal something better that is to come? I think we'll see that in our study this morning. So, if you are a, a theological nerd, and it's not a bad thing, by the way, I would put myself in that category, I think you're going to really love this text today. Because it, it really does, it, it provides uh, so much to where the Bible goes, and it connects a whole lot of dots. Maybe, but maybe that's not you, right? You wouldn't consider yourself a Bible nerd. Maybe you're just not even consider yourself a Christian this morning. Right? Maybe you're just trying to you, you, you kind of walked in here, almost stumbled in here in some ways going, you know, Pastor, I, I'm just hoping that I hear some good news this morning. Maybe you just feel beaten up from this week or from this last maybe year or, or few years. Maybe it's just life circumstances. Maybe it's been sickness. Maybe it's been family strife or work strife or home strife, whatever it could be. You're just here this morning going, God, I, I just want to hear from you. Maybe be around your people. Maybe be encouraged that you are still moving, you are still active, you are still doing things, even to people like me. Well, if that's you this morning, I believe that this text will also be of great comfort for you, great encouragement for you, because we will not only see that God has not abandoned his people, nor has he abandoned his promises in this world, but often proves his trustworthiness in what we'll see called a covenant, a covenant, which I'll explain in a bit. But let's go ahead and stop there. I want to pray one more time. I pray, I want to pray for you, and then I ask that as I'm doing that, will you guys just pray for me and for the preaching of the word, and then we'll read Genesis chapter 15. But please bow your head with me. Well, Father, before we just open up and, and look at your word, we want to come before you again. Because we are absolutely dependent on you for all things. And Lord, we want to submit to that. And Father, I ask that you would continue to just make your word known. That God, through your spirit, that you would illuminate the text. Allow us to understand it for all of what it matters to us, that we would even just be able to have the heart change to be able to, to love it, submit to it, be changed by it. 
God, I also want to pray for our kiddos and our teachers next door as they're looking at the same text and rightfully trying to apply it just to the littlest of hearts in that room, including my own kids. God, please save them. Change their hearts. Allow them to see who you are and the beauty of the gospel for them right now. But Lord, we are dependent on you for that change. We recognize that. We trust you in that. As with all things that we try to do today, may it be for your glory and our joy. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 15. Let me just go ahead and just read through the whole chapter. It'll be on the screen behind me, but please uh, follow along in your Bibles. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, You know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadmites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, what I would like to do this morning is really to break up our text and also the sermon into three chunks that we're going to look at. The first section is we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6, where I believe we see God speaking to the assurance for Abram. He's speaking about assurance that Abram needs to hear. And then the second section is verses 7 through 21, which shows the trustworthiness of God through this covenant-making ceremony. And then lastly, what I want to do is, like we've been doing every week through our study in Genesis, 
is try to understand where does Genesis 15 fit into the entirety of Scripture? How does this fit redemptively? But first, let's start with that assurance of Abram. What do we see in the very first verse? Well, we notice that it says, after these things. After these things. Now, what are these things that he's talking about? It could be the, the war that we saw last week in Genesis 14, the war with the five kings and the four kings. We could, maybe it's talking about the conversation with Melchizedek. It could be referring to maybe all of what has happened since we met Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. But notice here that God knows. He knows where Abram's heart is at. He's a good God. And so he comes to him in a vision, and he reminds him that he is a what? He's a shield, a protector, a comforter, that he can trust him, and he can trust the promises that he has made to Abram. And once again, he's going to repeat those promises because Abram, like all of us, we're what? We're forgetful, right? We, we forget. And, and Abram's having difficulty trusting God. Maybe he hasn't forgotten the, the details of the promises that have been given to him, but certainly at this point we see that he's trusting the timing of God's promises. He says, I'm still childless. I still don't have this land. It's still not mine. There's still other people here. I believe you, but I'm also struggling to know, God, what's your timing here? Which, have you ever been there? You trust God, but his timing is like, God, I I think you could speed things up a little bit. Yeah, me too. But what does God do? Well, he continues to assure him. He continues to assure him, and so he reminds him that his heir will be his physical son. That there's no shortcuts. That God will deliver what he promises. That there will be a physical descendant of his that will carry forward the promises of God. But God goes even above and beyond just that that first child, doesn't he, here? He wants to display exactly how good he will be. So he not only doesn't focus just on the first son, but all of those that will come up to him. So he brings Abram out to the stars, right? And asks Abram to count them. Now, I'm sure that many of you, right, you have been, been outside or maybe been on a mountaintop or somewhere, right, where you don't have the obstruction of city lights or housing developments, just clear skies. And what do those stars look like? Well, there's a lot of them, aren't there? I imagine this is the case with Abram. Whether this is a vision or physically he's outside. That Abram is looking at these stars. Maybe even he actually tries to start numbering them. And God kind of says, all of these stars reflect the number of your descendants. That you can trust me. You can marvel at the beauty of these stars as provision for this world in the same manner that you can marvel at the beauty and provision that I have for you. You know, when I was working through the state and and various times of hunting in the Nevada mountain ranges, right, you get these moments when you're just looking and beholding the night sky. And all you can do is respond in awe. 
all you can do by looking at the night sky is you don't look at it and go, you know, I'm pretty awesome. Right? We don't do that. And I think that's God's good gift of grace in which creation reminds us that he is far better than we could ever imagine. But then in verse 6, if we keep going, look down at verse 6. Verse 6 is probably one of the most important passages. If Genesis chapter 15 is an important chapter, Genesis verse 6 is one of those passages that you need to have highlighted, underlined in your Bible. Maybe that makes you feel uncomfortable. You don't like to write in your Bible. I would encourage you, underline this. This is important. What does it say? Verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as a righteousness. Now, here is why this is important. Because as you continue along through Scripture, the New Testament writers, in particular Paul, he keeps going back to this verse in Genesis to remind all of humanity that justification is by faith alone in God. It happens in Romans, it happens in Galatians. That if we want to understand how are we made right with God, how does someone who is a sinner clearly able to have, be in relationship, be able to have any type of righteousness with a holy God? Well, it's by having a faith in somebody else. In fact, let me show you this in Romans chapter 4 where Paul talks about this. Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Because like many religions say, when Paul was writing this, like in many religions today, I was in then, and, and even sections of Christianity that I would believe are in error. They have a tendency to emphasize that you must do something in order to be made right with God. That you have to do something, and if you do something to God, he will respond to you with righteousness and salvation. You have to obey the law. You have to do the right spiritual disciplines. But here is what we're seeing in Romans and also here in Genesis. Is how is someone justified by God? By believing him. Trusting in him and him alone. Because Abraham believed God, right? He had faith, not in what he would do, right? There's nothing that says Abraham believed God that he would do right from here on out. But rather... He simply believed God. Right? Abraham didn't appear or upheld the Mosaic law in order to be justified by God. The Mosaic law hadn't even been written yet. But yet what we're seeing here is Abraham was accredited this righteousness. It was given to him. He knew God. He believed in faith. His faith was sufficient. In God and God alone. His faith was not in faith, right? Your faith has to have an object. And you don't want it to be just a vague faithness. You want it to be in somebody. His faith was in God. And as we see that righteousness that is counted to him, 
it's not a theoretical righteousness, right? That's not just a fancy religious word that means a good person. That righteousness means that there is no fault to be found within you. Complete, utter sinlessness. So how did somebody get that kind of righteousness? If, if Abram clearly couldn't do that, hasn't done that in the past, well, then it had to come from somebody else. Not just a theoretical righteousness, but a real righteousness from a real person who lived a real life that actually was without sin. And I think we could all begin to see, okay, who was that? Christ Jesus. The one who was spotless, who lived a perfect life. But yet that life was then imputed or given to Abram. And by faith, Abram looked forward to God's work. Remember, we looked, we looked at this when we started Genesis. In, in a way that we don't fully maybe know, when God began this relationship with Abram, it says that he spoke or actually preached the gospel to Abram ahead of time. So Abram looked forward to the person of God and this righteousness that was given to him. And we... On this side of Genesis, right on this side of the New Testament, we look back and say, that is what Jesus did. He did live the perfect life. So we look back at the work of God. And although verse 6 is that beautiful picture of justification by faith alone, God still wants to put even more beauty around it here in Genesis chapter 15. And that's where we go into the second section. That not only does God assure Abram, but then he shows his trustworthiness. That you can believe him. You can trust him. And he does so in a beautiful way by actually ratifying a covenant with Abram. Answering the very question that we actually see in verse 8. When Abram asks, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Is there anything that would show me that this is true? Well, God responds by this covenant ceremony in the following verses. Now, a covenant, it's a word we've seen before in Genesis. It's the Hebrew word berit. And what a covenant is, is it's a commitment involving two parties that display both a blessing when it's upheld, but also a curse if it's broken. And in regards to God in the scripture, you'll see covenants throughout your reading of the Bible. And when God makes a covenant, right, makes these commitments, he does so with what are known as federal heads. Federal heads are individuals who not only represent themselves, but also represent entire people behind them. And that's why some of the covenants we've already seen throughout Scripture was a covenant with Adam in the garden, representing humanity. Then we see a covenant with Noah, also representing humanity. Humanity, But now we have this covenant with Abram, who's representing God's people here. But even though this is the first time we're hearing the word covenant in, for, in regards to Abram, God began this covenant back in chapter 12. When God entered into a relationship with Abram, do you remember what he promised him? Do you remember those promises? Promises to make his name great, right? To give him land and a nation, to bring about an heir of a blessing that would bless who? The entire world. 
that would come through Abram's line, all of which God said he will do. I will do this. But here in Genesis 15, God confirms this covenant with Abram through a ceremony. And even amidst the ceremony, he even clarifies and then begins to set in those, those sanctions of commitment for what would happen if it was broken. So let's look at that ceremony. It's an important one for us to understand. Verses 9 through 10. When God said to Abram, bring me right, a heifer, a cow, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. Now, why three years old? Uh, best guess is that's when they were full grown. These were adults, adult animals. And he calls Abram to take the cow, the goat, and the ram and do what? To cut them up, cut them in half. And then actually to take these, right, these bodies of animals and then to lay one side of the body here and then one side of the body a little way, providing almost a pathway of sorts marked by the blood of those animals that would have significance. So this is what Abram does. He he cuts up these animals and he lays them aside. And you have this pathway made by the blood of another. Now here in Genesis, we're not told, okay, why did he have to cut up animals like this? Why did he have to lay them like this? Well, this was a very common way that covenants were instituted during the near ancient world. And later in the Bible, we're actually given some indication of why were these animals cut up this way. And let me, let me show you this. Uh, we should have a slide, Mike, for Jeremiah 34, 18. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. This is where we see the reason why they were cut up this way. It says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. So why were the animals cut up this way? Well, it was signaling or representing that when someone walks through the parts of these animals, they are promising their involvement in the covenant and saying, if I go back on my promise or I break the covenant, may I be treated in the same way that these animals were. I deserve death. That's why a covenant is more than just a promise. You guys see that? So the stage has been set, right? The animals had been sacrificed. They've been laid. But then what happens? Well, we'll look at verse 12. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So it's immediately nighttime. Abram's asleep in some capacity. But yet, what do we hear? Even when there's utter darkness and utter inability to do anything, what do we see, church? We see God speak here, which should be of great encouragement for us pastorally, that even when things seem really dark, God's word still resounds true and can pierce even the darkest of nights. So he promises, he reminds Abram of his promises and he even gives Abram almost a prophecy of sorts. Do you notice that? At least more details of this coming land that has been given to Abram. And he tells Abram that this promised land that is coming, that you'll actually be sojourners in for a long time. 
that it will not be fully yours for many years to come. In fact, he says, hey, your people, your offspring, will actually be held captive by another nation for about 400 years before they're able to actually inherit the promised land. Which is exactly what happened, isn't it? At the end of Genesis and through Exodus, when God's people were enslaved by Egypt for 400 years, and then redeemed and then had to make their way to the promised land, which they would get to in the book of Joshua. But God, I want, what I want you to see is that God doubles down on his promises here. Saying, it is coming, but there are things that are going to happen before that I'm only going to give you a, a little picture of. But you can trust me. You can trust me, Abram, that I will make good on my promises. Because what happens next? What happens after God speaks this? Look at verse 17. This is fascinating, church. I think it's fascinating. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, what's that about? Well, smoke and fire in the Old Testament represented what? It represented the presence of God. So what he's saying is that God himself, through almost a theophany, right, this, this visual presence of God walked through, went through those cut pieces. And we know this is the case because if we look at verse 18, we see that the Lord made a covenant with Abram. A covenant to bring about an heir, a covenant to bring about a land. But notice, who did not go through the pieces? Abram didn't. Abram did not go through the pieces. And why is that? Because God alone was saying, I will bear the penalty of a broken promise. I will bear the penalty of a broken covenant. Which should be pretty radical to our ears. Because think about this. What are we learning here in this moment? We are learning that God alone was willing to shed his own divine blood in order to make good on his promises to his people. A shadow of what is to come. And that's why, church, we begin to zoom out of Genesis 15. Right? And see Genesis 15 amongst the whole story of God. And see how this moment was pointing to another that this moment of a promised offspring of Abraham to bless the entire world, right? Certainly, it was going to bless the ethnic nation of Israel that would become Abraham's family line. But the entire world was going to receive blessing from this moment. And theologically speaking, this is what is known as the new covenant. The new covenant. That the Abrahamic covenant here was pointing to a new and better covenant that was to come. And the Bible calls it simply the new covenant. You've probably heard that language before. It's a covenant that's actually spoken many times in the Bible. Even in the Old Testament, in, in places like Ezekiel 37 or Jeremiah 31, we're told that God is going to make a new covenant with his people. A new covenant, unlike the covenants of old, a covenant at its heart was going to bring sinners to a restored relationship with God. 
A covenant that promised the forgiveness of sins. A covenant that promised the righteousness of God was going to be available and given to those who would be a part of it. A covenant that even promised the indwelling of God himself through the Holy Spirit. That's what the new covenant is. And the promises, or the promise, much like the Abrahamic covenant, of a land and a God would ultimately find their fulfillment in this new covenant. And so after this, right, throughout the story of Genesis and the story of God's people, throughout the Old Testament, what's happening? God's people are waiting, right, waiting for God to continue to bring about that heir, to continue to bring about this, this ultimate promise. And then at the very beginning of the book of Matthew, what do we see in the lineage? That that heir had come. And his name was Jesus Christ. Or Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. The very offspring in which was promised in Genesis 12 has come. And let me read to you a quote from a man named um, Sam Renahan. He's a, a, a scholar, pastor, very brilliant guy. He wrote this book called The Covenants in Christ, which I find just a wonderful book. And I just pulled a little snapshot out of this. But let me read this to you. When he's trying to connect the dots between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, he says, The scriptures reveal that the blessing for the world is the new covenant. The benefits of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection are made available to all the world through the New Covenant. So, from its inception, the Abrahamic Covenant is not just anticipating the New Covenant, but carrying it within itself. The Old Covenant is pregnant with the New Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant provides Christ. Christ provides the New Covenant. Church, you see how these are all connected. What And there were some very real promises to Abram and that immediate offspring that would come. And we'll, we'll continue to study that as we go through the book of Genesis. But we have to see that this promise to bring about an heir, the heir is Christ. The heir is Christ pointing us forward. But let's think about the covenant ceremony. How would then Jesus ratify this new covenant then? Right? How would he say that I can be trusted in providing this new covenant, that I will not break my promises? How does the promise come to be? Well, unlike the past, it wasn't going to come through the blood of bulls and goats and rams, but by the blood of Christ on the cross. It's his blood that seals the new covenant. And Jesus actually tells us this. Do you remember in, in the upper room when Jesus is explaining the Lord's Supper? Let me show you this. In Luke chapter 22, we read about this often when we talk about communion or the Lord's Supper. But I want you guys to see this in light of this covenant language. When Jesus says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He was saying, I will ratify the new covenant. And it won't be the blood of another sacrifice. It will come from the blood of the sacrifice myself. So the new covenant is then the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant offspring. 
where God doesn't just promise that he is willing to shed his blood to seal it, but actually does shed his own blood for the permanence of this new covenant. He was pierced and cut in order for the new covenant to be unlike all of those that came before and one that we can rejoice in today. And so how do we end our time then? Well, we end our time in Genesis 15 by rejoicing then in what this day in Abram's life led to, don't we? It was this day that continued the plan of God. It was this day where God continued to make his promises to his people. Promises made, promises kept. And so here's my prayer for you, church, is that when we walk out of here today, we would leave here believing God, trusting in him fully for what he has done and will continue to do. That we are made righteous, not because of us, but because of him. We have believed him. We have faith in him. And we have faith in him because he is trustworthy. And he has demonstrated that trust in our lives by the most profound way, hasn't he, Christian? Proven his love for you by going to the cross. By being risen from the grave. By ascending back to the throne. He is now that mediator of the new covenant forevermore. Pretty neat stuff. And I pray, going back to where we started, maybe you just came in just wanting to not be so beaten up by life or just felt downcast. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you a bunch of things to do today. I'm not going to give you five things that you need to implement into your life. I got one for you. Behold Christ in the new covenant. Because I believe if we are, have our eyes fixed on that, all the real things that we have going on in our life, it will impact. It will provide us a good and sure foundation to stand upon. It will remind us of the one and true gospel in which we can stand upon no matter what comes our way, no matter what you're going through. I hate that there's sin in this world. I hate that there's suffering in your guys' lives. I really do. But I'm thankful for a God who not only has been working throughout history, aligning all these details to his perfect end, but is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're going to rejoice in him. And I pray that you would trust in him if you haven't. This is the God in whom we worship. Let's pray, church. Father, as we end our time in your word, we want to thank you. We just want to thank you for being the God who we can trust, for being the God who is far more majestic and deserving of our, of our praise than we could ever imagine.